Wherever there are shadows, there are people ready to kick at the darkness until it bleeds daylight. This is Bleeding Daylight with your host, Rodney Olson. Thanks for listening. Please share episodes of Bleeding Daylight from our Facebook, Instagram and Twitter accounts. You'll find the links at bleedingdaylight.net. Please also rate and review Bleeding Daylight wherever you listen to podcasts. Today's guest had his secret life unmasked when he was blackmailed by a prostitute. While it turned his life upside down, it was also the catalyst to turn his life around. I'll introduce you in a moment. Neil Getzlow lived in two separate worlds, but when those two worlds collided, his life was in danger of being torn apart. As countries around the world began being changed by a pandemic in early 2020, Neil's life was turned upside down by the actions he took while on a business trip. He's a podcaster and author of the book Unmasked. He joins me on Bleeding Daylight today to share his story. Neil, thank you so much for your time. Yeah, thank you so much, Rodney, for having me on. I really appreciate it. There's a lot that I'd like to explore in your story, and much of what we're going to be talking about can be traced back to you as a nine-year-old or even younger. But before we go there, tell me about that business trip in February 2020. Yeah, and that's uh, that's a, a memory that's sort of tattooed on my brain. I, I don't think I can ever forget it. And, and frankly, I, I shouldn't forget it right? Because that is what set me off on this journey to redemption. February 2020, February 26, actually, to be precise, uh, I had gone to a business trip in Chicago, like so many other business trips that uh, I'd been on over the course of my career and and time with me being married to my wife. Uh, On this particular business trip, I did kind of what I would normally do on a business trip, and that is I suffered from sex addiction. That's how I medicated myself from the anxieties and and depression that I was experiencing. I would seek out women on the internet to meet, and specifically, I I would seek out prostitutes. That is exactly what I did on that fateful morning. I don't even know what triggered me to look that morning. It was a snowy morning in Chicago. Normally, I'd go out for a run, but like this addiction inside me just there were moments where you just like any drug, you just can't control it. And I had this urge and needed this high. And so I I found someone online, set up a meeting, went to that meeting at this person's hotel. When I got done with the meeting, there were two bedrooms in this hotel room and the second bedroom door opened up and out walks this giant man. I'm going to say six, four, six, five, 300 pounds. And compared to me, I, I look like definitely a, a tiny person next to him. And he was dressed in drag of all things. I saw he had a cell phone up in his left hand and he holds up the cell phone and it has my wife's contact information on it and her social media accounts. And he looks at me and says, Neil, you're going to have to pay us more money or we're going to call your wife. Of course, the first thing I thought of was, and I, I put myself in a lot of dangerous and nasty situations before, when you're in this sort of autopilot mode, you don't think about the repercussions of what can happen. Finally, I'm starting to think about, okay, I may not walk out of this hotel room in one piece. And I, I don't want my wife to get a phone call saying, well, we found your husband. He was murdered in a hotel room at the hands of a prostitute. 
So I, I did whatever I could to get out of that room. About $900 later, I finally made it to the door. And as I got out of the room and was essentially sprinting toward the elevator, I hear the door open up back behind me and they're yelling at me, hey, Neil, you're going to have to pay us more money or we're going to call your wife. But with that, the elevator doors opened, hopped on, got out. And this is why I, I called my book Unmasked, because I went about my day and nobody knew. You think, this is what I did my entire life. I hid all these, what I call sexual sins behind these my this mask that I had. And all the people that I met on my business meetings that day had no idea. I, I made it home they to Kansas City, and my wife Amy picked me up. She had no idea. This couple that I'd met in Chicago still hadn't called her. So as of Thursday night, February 26th, I'm thinking, all right, it was just a threat. They wanted to scare me. They got $900 out of me. Life goes on. I'm going to be able to keep this secret life. It's a risky situation, as you say, and you had put yourself in risky situations in the past. When you're doing this constantly, there surely are triggers. There are things that you notice that are not quite right. Were there things in this encounter leading into it that you thought, hang on, something's not right here? For me, and this is something that, again, this this was an addiction I had been feeding for, for several years. So, yeah, there are definitely some things you look for to protect yourself. Usually, you, your gut will tell you whether it's a, it's a room you want to walk into or a situation you want to put yourself in. Now, I've got to be honest. If I'm being transparent here already, I'm going to have to continue to be transparent and say a lot of times I ignored my gut. And, and I think looking back on it now, I think that gut... The gut feeling I had was the feeling I was getting from from God, but I typically ignored that gut feeling. But there was definitely a couple of big red flags. One was this person, when I went to the hotel room, she wouldn't come downstairs to greet me, which is typically what happened, or would give me her hotel room where I could just come up and, and go right up to the room. She actually said, I'm going to put the key in the elevator and hit the lobby floor and the elevator will come down, open up and my room key will be there. You can grab it and come on up, which again, I thought, okay, that's kind of weird, but you know, whatever, I'm on a mission, I'm going to do it. And then as I got into the room, you know, she, she definitely was acting a little nervous, I guess. I would see her looking at her phone a lot. What I didn't realize until afterwards, and I started getting some text messages from this couple with some explicit pictures of me in compromising positions, she, in, in the middle of our encounter, was taking pictures. I look back now and like the red, it wasn't just a red flag. It was like a giant red alarm blaring as loud as it could possibly be. And yet I ignored it. And as you say, this is an addiction. So there's still something, despite all the dangers, despite the fact that you also knew that this addiction was leading you places that never satisfied, you were still driven to take part in these acts. Now, you say that you went home and you thought that's the last you'd hear about it, and yet you've just mentioned that they did get in touch with you. What transpired from there? When I had left their hotel room and, and headed back to sort of my other life, my real life, right, that everyone knew, they were sending me messages saying, you need to send us more money. And they sent a couple of pictures of me. That, so I knew they had proof. Again, I, I just kept thinking, they just want more money. Obviously, 
they'll get bored, they'll move on to some other victim, and they will forget about me, and life will go on. This will be nothing but just a bad memory that I can shake off. Everything changed then on that following Sunday, March 1st, 2020, about 9.30 p.m. That's when my cell phone started blowing up again in text messages from this couple, and they said, you've got 15 minutes to pay us more money or we are going to call your wife. And again, then they sent me a picture of my wife's social media account, her cell phone number, and again, more pictures of me. All I could think of was, this is probably not the the greatest response, but my response was, I'm just going to ignore it. They'll get bored. What good does it do if they call Amy? Because then they're not going to get any more money from me. I mean, again, I'm just trying to rationalize this in my broken brain. 15 minutes later, I could hear Amy's phone start blowing up, up in our upstairs bedroom. And I hear kind of this muffled sounds of a conversation. And then uh, she comes barging down the stairs and the footsteps are getting louder and louder. And she barges into my office and she's like, are you cheating on me? Of course, I did what any good addict would do, which is I, I lied. I said, this is something I've never done before. Uh, you know, I've been blackmailed. I, I don't ever want to do this again. I don't want to get divorced. I, w- I was just saying what anything that I could possibly could to number one, avoid having a conversation about what was going on and just get it behind me. Let's get to the morning, move on, hoping against hope that time will heal everything. And this is just, again, just becomes a memory that just fades away. So you've been blackmailed. It has come to this where they followed through on their threat They've let Amy know what's going on. You're trying to still rationalize it. But, of course, Amy has had her entire world rocked. What was her reaction then? Amy had a feeling for a long time that something was going on. And I will say that she became a Christ follower about three months after we had gotten married. Basically, up until February 2020, I was an atheist she was always telling me that she was praying for me and and hoping that I would get saved, but she didn't have any idea of sort of this evil that I was bringing into our marriage. And she was hurt. She was confused. She didn't have any proof other than this one encounter. She didn't know anything else that had happened. You know, part of that is because I kept everything secret and locked up. At the time when this all went down, Amy didn't have any of my passwords to my phone, to my laptop, she couldn't see any of the messages I was sending. She couldn't, didn't have access to all of my bank accounts. It was really a secret life. She didn't have any way to find out that there was this other layer underneath there. So it was, frankly, it was very puzzling for her. She couldn't figure out where this behavior had come from, although she could feel it in her gut that something was off in our marriage. And there was, of course. She needed more information before we could finally settle this and, and try to try to rebuild our marriage. But but frankly, at that time, at the beginning of March 2020, I'd say I wasn't sure that there was going to be a marriage to save. Two weeks after this all goes down, the pandemic strikes. And in the US, we got locked down, essentially. Both of our jobs were impacted. So we were not working in the house together for two months with this giant, I like to say giant matzo ball sitting in our living room. And we're trying to figure out what to do with it. I want to jump back now because we don't want to say that there are excuses, that there are reasons that make this behavior all right, but there are always things that lead us to the places that we go. 
Take me back to that young boy around age nine or even younger and tell me what life was like. What are the elements that led to this place? I grew up in the late 70s, early 80s. That was my eight, nine, 10, 11, 12 years of age time, just to give you some perspective. And my siblings, I had three other siblings, two sisters and a brother. They're 10 years plus older than me. So by the time I got to about eight or nine years old, they were already grown up. And at that time, you know, if you're 18 years old, you move out of the house. Doesn't happen that way today necessarily. So my kids are evidence of that. But so basically, I'm, I'm an, I become an only child right about the age of, of nine years old. At that same time, my parents get divorced. I'm by myself a lot. And I, I will say that that's really where when I finally confessed everything to Amy, and I know we'll, we'll get to that, to that kind of that crescendo here in a little bit, a very important piece of my journey, which not only involved a faith journey to God, but a mental health journey trying to get my mind right, was talking to a faith-based counselor. The, the very first question that he asked me when we met was, what's the first thing you remember you had to learn how to do as a little kid? Which I thought, gosh, that is a fascinating question. And then sort of like it hit me like, <laughs> you just hit me in the face like, wow. Because my answer was, I had to learn how to be alone. That's where this hole in my heart started. I, I didn't feel the love that maybe some other kids felt. Again, my parents were divorced. My siblings are gone. I moved in with my mom. She then had to get a job and work 40 hours a week. I was home alone a lot. And that's where I had to sort of take care of myself and fill up this loneliness. What I filled it up with was pornography. And it started at the age of nine. There was a, a wooded area behind our elementary school called the Playboy Forest. We'd ride our bikes over to this spot after school, and we'd go into this forest, and there'd be these bits and pieces of Playboy magazine all around this little wooded area we would look at. And that's sort of where I first got hooked. Because once it grabbed me, like it didn't let go. And then as I... You got a little bit older. Again, my mom, I moved in with my mom. She had these two nightstands on either side of her bed. They were filled with Playboy and Penthouse magazines. So here I am, a preteen. There's nobody looking after me. I'm alone. That's how I learned how to try to fill up my heart and try to not be alone was through these, through these magazines. What I didn't realize was the damage it was doing to me you know, how I viewed relationships growing up. And it was, again, it, it became a drug for me. And going back to the conversation I had with my counselor, you know, it became a shame cycle. And so it would go something like, I'm feeling alone. Nobody loves me. I'm going to make myself feel better. So I'm going to look at this pornography. I look at the pornography makes me feel better for a little bit, but then I, I feel almost instantly guilty. Oh, this is why I'm alone. This is why nobody loves me. And then the cycle just repeats itself over and over again. And it did it from that very first time that I started looking at porn. And it just, it showed up in my life in many different ways over the course of the next 40 years. That's what led me to that hotel room in Chicago. 
Now, you're talking about this addiction starting early, and it's beginning to give this shame cycle where you think, no, this this is wrong, and yet I keep going back to it. I'm wondering where that sense of shame, where that sense of wrong comes from, because what you're looking at are these glossy magazines made by these big corporate entities. Your mum has a stack of them, so that almost gives permission that this is okay. And more and more in our society, we hear people talking more openly about pornography as if this is okay, and yet there was something inside you that says, Actually, no, it's not. Where do you think that struggle came from? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. Because you are right. I think the way the way I looked at it was this is just normal. This is what you do when you're a boy growing up. You're looking at these magazines. To give you an example, like I'd go over to almost any neighbor's house and play with you know my friends, and then when we got done playing, the question would always go back to, okay, so where's your dad's porn stash? And we'd go rifling through this person's closet and we'd find the magazines. It was just a normal everyday occurrence. And then also think about the timing of this too. For me, the early 80s was the birth of cable TV in the US. So now all of a sudden, not only are we getting these magazine pictures, now we're getting live pictures in front of us through the videos on MTV, through these soft core movies on cable TV, on HBO and and Showtime when they first came out. The way I look at it, I feel like my culture was seduced from me because all these images that are everywhere that to make you think this is just normal. I knew that I was acting wrong, but how I was acting by looking at these images and and, and, and then which led to the sort of this, like I said, it, it became a drug where Soon the pornography itself wasn't enough. I needed more. And I'd graduate as I got older and had more money. I would graduate to, you know, an adult theater or strip clubs. And again, just like any drug, that soon the the high you would get from that, that wore off and you need something stronger. That's what led me to prostitution. It is just a gradual stair step into that world that I I didn't realize what, what it was doing to me, what it was doing to my family until I was staring at the edge of a cliff with a long way down. This addiction that you had had already destroyed one marriage for you, and you must have thought, well, the pattern is just repeating. My parents divorced, and now I'm divorced. Again, you fast forward to this time where you've been caught out. Amy has found out what's been going on, and you're trying over this two-month period of being locked in a house together to come to to some sort of resolution, where do we go from here? It must have been difficult because the track in your mind is saying, this is how it always ends and it's going to be over. What actually happened? You would think once you've gotten blackmailed by a prostitute that that might snap you out of whatever might be ailing you. But I truly believe this is an addiction that I, I just couldn't control. After about, I would say, six weeks post-Chicago, and this would be the middle of April of 2020, you know, and we were, I guess I would define our marriage as okay. Like, we didn't address it in the way we, we should have. Again, we just kind of pushed it to the side. We both were ignoring it, just hoping it would go away and would just be a, a one-time thing. But here we are six weeks later in the in the middle of a pandemic, no less, my addiction is flaring up and I'm feeling this overwhelming need that I've got to go. I'm having anxiety. 
there's depression that I suffered with in a severe way that was clouding my judgment. And I set up another appointment. I'm this, I'm back in Kansas City now. I was texting another woman that I had an arrangement with, doing it all on my laptop. And I set up to go to go meet her and, and have this appointment. And here's what I like to say that God decided to, to meet me, or should I say, to take a two by four to my head for the second time. So I, I leave the house. And as soon as I left the house, I knew Amy would jump on my computer and try to see what I was doing. That's why I, I, I don't leave the house at the time without locking down all of my devices because I can't take the chance of having Amy discover what's going on. That's why it came as a great shock to me when no more than 10 minutes after I'd pulled out of the driveway and started to head to this meeting that Amy starts texting me and she's taking screenshots of this entire conversation that I had with this other woman on my computer. And I'm thinking, how is this possible? I locked my computer. I don't make that mistake. That's a rookie mistake. I just don't do that. I was incredulous. I turned around, came home. I don't even remember what I told Amy, to be honest. It was a bunch of nothing, a bunch of lies. Frankly, I was, I was out of lies at that point because I knew that I, I knew that the end was near here one way or the other. And whatever I told Amy, she obviously was not buying it, and rightly so. She had no reason to believe me. And when we got done talking, she told me, she, she's just like, Neil, the only way you're going to be able to save this marriage is if you ask God for help. And that's how we ended the, the conversation that night. And then the next morning, I woke up. Amy had already left the house to you know collect her thoughts. And so I, I'm alone in bed. I'm thinking, well, this is probably about as good as time as any to pray, which I'd never done before in my life. Because again, going back to being, you know, being an atheist and, but I prayed and I just said, God, I, I don't know what's going on, but I am, I have nowhere else to go. I need help. I, I can't stop this, whatever is ailing me. And I just, if you've got help out there, just give me a sign that help is, is out there and I will, I'll, I'll take the lifeline. And as, as soon as I ended that prayer, the garage door opens up and it was, it was Amy. And, and I really believe that Amy is the absolute key to this whole story. Without her part of it, there is no happy ending. And there is a happy ending to this, but there's still a little bit more, more of a dark side to get through before, before that happens. Amy comes home that from where she was. I told her that we pray, that I prayed and that I want to work on our marriage. For the first time, I, I finally meant it. But, you know, again, Amy's like just extremely confused about what is happening. And, you know, she reluctantly agrees that, you know, that we'll, we'll keep talking. And then finally, this all comes to a head here later that afternoon. This is April 14th, 2020. And we're sitting on the couch. And this time, Amy gets a message. And this time, it's a, it's a Facebook instant message from some random guy that we don't know. And all it says was, do you know when Neil gets low? I don't know what happened inside of me when she read that message, but all I knew was that it was time for me to confess everything that I had been doing while we were married. And I sat her down and I told her everything. Uh, I told her about the pornography. I told her about the 
sex addiction and, and meeting women online and paying them. I felt like I was felt like I was throwing up all over the floor of the marriage. Like it's, you know, you could feel when you're about to get sick, it starts to bubble up in your stomach and it just comes up your throat, gets to your mouth and you just let it go and you can't stop it. And that's what happened when I, when I finally confessed everything and just like what happens after you get sick, I felt relieved. Like, oh, I, like I could actually sit up straight again and, and this load off my shoulders was gone. But of course, I'm bracing now for, for what is Amy going to say? And I'm fearing the worst, of course. Like there's, you know, up until that moment, I would say any normal situation, right? Amy is like, I'm out of here. See ya. But she looked up at me and she she changed both of our lives is what she said, because she she said, Neil, Jesus, forgive me for my sins. How can I not forgive you for yours? I forgive you. I, I still think about that moment and just it's uh, it's hard to describe because instantly like the chains of addiction were broken. I just passed the two year mark of being pornography clean and um, I have not been tempted to step outside of my marriage at all. I have a new life in Christ. Our marriage has it took some work a lot of work, and Amy's forgiveness didn't take any of the responsibility or accountability off of me. Far from it. And there are some lot of things that I had to do in, in the course of the next several months to help rebuild the marriage. But we have rebuilt it, and our marriage is... Uh, it's, it's a marriage that I've always wanted. I'm grateful for the miracle God created in my life. I don't know how else to describe it. Now, the doubters would say that You've come to a point and you've just decided to turn over a new leaf and change. And yet we even saw that you were blackmailed by a prostitute and that didn't make you stop. In your mind, how did you manage to stop this lifelong, almost lifelong addiction and just suddenly change what was happening? What was the change that came upon your life? For me, it, it started with faith, right? I had to, that's where I put my trust was in God. And God set up a plan for me. But I had to walk those steps out. God wasn't going to do it for me. I had to take a lot of drastic measures to sort of reclaim my culture and get rid of that nonstop sex that is being pounded into my into my head, into everything that I was was doing in my life. So immediately... I gave Amy access to all of my digital devices, my cell phone, my laptop, all my passwords. She can see everything that I am doing from that moment going forward. So there's never a question. So I think that immediately was step one, trying to rebuild the trust. You know, step two was putting a location app on both of our phones. So we, we both know where each other are at at all times. Of course, that was done primarily for her benefit, so she knew where I was at and can, could make sure that I was telling her the truth of where I was going and what I was doing. That helped. But then I, I was like, I'm not stopping. I'm doing more. I immediately canceled Netflix. I spent too much time wrapped up in the culture of this world. Got rid of Netflix. Got rid of cable TV. I cut all of my sports subscriptions. I, I will say, I know this sounds kind of crazy, but I was addicted to sports. And you're probably thinking, well, how are you addicted to sports? 
for me, like sports was my identity. If my teams had a great week, ah, oh, I was on top of the world. That was because of my fandom. That's why my teams did so great. It was always, we did this, we did that. But if my teams lost, I, it ruined my mood. Like I was just overly invested in sports. It was, became life and death. Frankly, it was an idol for me, but I had to eliminate that. I also eliminated going to the bars with my friends because in, inevitably I'd go to the bars and watch sports and end up drinking. And that would lead into some of the other things that, that I was doing. Same with smoking marijuana. I think it's so interesting the, the fact that all this went down in 2020 because the way I look at it, like God said to me, I'm going to take away everything you love. I'm going to take away your porn. I'm going to take away your sex. I'm going to take away the sports you love because COVID's going on and I'm taking that away and I'm going to take away you going out with your friends and the alcohol and all that. What are you going to do now? You got a chance to reset your life. Are you going to do it? And that's what I've done. I've embraced it. And instead of filling up with what, what I would call the, the junk food of my life, I'm filling it up with healthy stuff. And again, for me, it's, it's the Bible and it's praying and it's going to church and surrounding myself with like-minded people. But that's, again, for me, that's, that's what I had to do. And there's such hope in there that if people are listening who are going through their own addiction or they're living life with someone who's undergoing addiction, there is hope that says that this can be not just minimized, but can be totally broken, as has happened in your life. But I guess the other side of it is that we could just put your life into life was a mess. You were an atheist living a life that was contrary to, to where God wanted you to go. Then you found Jesus and everything's fine. But we've got to admit, and your research has, has borne this out, that there are many people that are sitting Sunday by Sunday in the pew of a church, but they are equally as addicted. Tell me about some of that research that you found. Yeah, so as, as I was putting the book together, this stat just blew me away, but 60% of men who call themselves Christians looked at porn within the last 30 days. And I got to believe that number's got to be higher because, you know, like who, a Christian man probably wouldn't admit to what he's looking at. But, but I will also say just anecdotally, as I've, you know, shared my journey with other people in our church, I know that other men are struggling with this inside my church even. It is a problem that, that needs to be addressed. And if it's a problem in the church, I can't imagine what it is outside of the church. We, I mean, we just know. like It is something that pornography is accessible in the matter of seconds on your cell phone. I think it's a big issue, and it's a, it's a big issue inside of church, and that's why I do want to bring attention to it. And I'm, a lot of people are you know, always ask me, why, do you, like, why are you sharing this story? Like, this is such, a lot of it is so ugly, and, you know, you're, you're sort of calling yourself out. And like, well, yeah, I am. Well, number one, like I want to show you when you put your focus on God and when you fill yourself up with what I consider the good things of life, you, you can make a difference. And like I will say, my anxiety, almost non-existent. My depression, almost non-existent. And that's not to say 
you just snap your fingers and oh, everything's better. I am completely normal and there are no issues whatsoever. <laughs> that is not the truth <laughs> at all. I mean, Amy and I, even though we are in such a great spot today, I'll give you the story that just happened last week over the um, the two-year anniversary of my um, being clean from pornography. It was a day I wanted to celebrate because like two years, this is a big deal and I'm proud of it and and I want people to know that they can break free from their addictions too. But like that whole day, I was just kind of feeling bummed. I wasn't sure why. And then as I was talking to Amy that night, you know, she sort of didn't really want to acknowledge the anniversary. And I was like, well, this is good news for us, right? She's like, well, it's good news for you, but this day brings back all the reminders of what you used to be. And it's not like she wants to look back at that, but it just, what it shows me is that there's, you know, we still have healing to do. Now, there are a lot of things in our life that are helping us do that. And I know we're going to, we're just going to continue to get better and better, but it is hard work. You have to take accountability for your actions. And I know that that COVID anxiety and depression is real. There are a lot of people out there. You can see the numbers in the media. Alcohol deaths are up. People are reporting more anxiety, more depression over the past two years. It's a real issue. And whether it's pornography, alcohol, drugs, whatever, people are trying to find ways to, to medicate themselves. My suggestion is, well, I, I medicated on, on <laughs> it sounds kind of weird, but look, I turned my focus on God. That's how I found a new identity. And for me, that's that's what made all the difference. But I don't want to discount the mental health side of things. You also have to talk to a counselor if you're suffering those addictions or the anxieties. Like, Don't be afraid to talk to someone about it. Find a close friend, find a professional, but talk about it. Don't Don't hold it in but find ways to break through. As people have started to read your book, Unmasked, what has been the response? What have people said to you? I think people are shocked, uh, number one, because all they saw was this nice guy, good father, good husband, hard worker. You know, they didn't have any idea all the, any of the stuff was lurking underneath. So I think people are shocked at first. I would say people are also encouraged by the fact that I, I was able to turn my life around and that Amy and, and my marriage was saved, that we just didn't give up on each other. And especially Amy didn't give up on me, even though I know that she had friends that were telling her that she probably should. So there's definitely some encouragement. And I know I've had several people um, from my church and even outside of my church who have told me directly that there's something that they're struggling with. It may not be as, as sinister as, as pornography, but they are struggling. And, and my journey's given them some hope. And that, that was really why I just, Amy and I decided to write the book, honestly. We want to let people know that there is a way out from, from what you might be facing. You can turn your life around. Like you, you can turn your marriage around. It can happen because... If it can happen for us, my gosh, yeah, and we've <laughs> we faced some pretty dark times in that spring of 2020. But if we can find a way through that, then I know that there is a way for 
for whatever other people might be experiencing as well. I love this story in that it's not just, as I say, it's not just turning over a new leaf of doing things differently, of cleaning up your act, but it is one of absolute transformation. It is transformation through the God that you serve, through what Jesus has done for you, and it has made that massive difference in your life. And I just love that. If people are listening and they want to get in touch, maybe there's some some issues that they're trying to face and they just want to touch base or to buy the book Unmasked, where's the easiest place for people to find you? Yeah, if you just go to my website, neilgetzlow.com, and you can find links to my social media on there. You can find links to uh, my podcast that I just started called Unmasked, surprisingly enough. And there's also a place you can email me as well if you have if people have questions and or just want to know how to to move forward in a situation or just want to vent, feel free to reach out to me there. And of course, you can buy my book through my website as well. You can also find the book on Amazon too. But I'll say if if you buy the book off of my website, um, not only will you get an autographed copy, but um, Amy and I are also donating donating five dollars from every book sold to run to stop it. That's an organization in Kansas City that is fighting to end human sex trafficking across the globe. So it's obviously an important issue for us that we are just very humbled and and grateful and blessed that we're able to support in some small way. Neil, I will put links for people to find you and your book in the show notes at bleedingdaylight.net. But I want to say thank you so much for sharing your story. I want to thank you for your openness, for your honesty, and thank you for spending some time with us on Bleeding Daylight today. Thank you so much. I'm just, I appreciate you giving me an opportunity to uh, to share my story. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Bleeding Daylight. Please help us to shine more light into the darkness by sharing this episode with others. For further details and more episodes, please visit bleedingdaylight.net.